Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and all eyes during the Hungarian Grand Prix this weekend will be on Daniel Ricciardo for his comeback. But what should we expect from him and AlphaTauri? And will his old team McLaren again be a contender for the podium at the Hungaroring? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to answer those questions and a lot more besides are Ben Anderson and Val Hurunji. Well, Val, welcome back to the podcast. How long is it going to be before you reference some kind of MotoGP comparison, which I always like because that is one of your areas of expertise? I mean, behind the scenes, I did it in the in the pre-episode discussion so there's that i'll try to not actually include any in the actual episode i think i filled my quota for the day well we'll try and hold you to that but i reckon it'll be uh sometime within the next 15 minutes and ben anderson once again sat in front of his packed trophy cabinet i can see as many as five or six trophies there behind you yeah there are many trophies no mid-season call up for me sadly but delighted to be called up for the podcast again well, you've uh, you've done okay, so you know we're, we're going to look at you for maybe in 2025 replacing uh, Mark Hughes or Scott Mitchell Malm on the uh, on the podcast A team. So uh, <laughs> yeah, see how you can do. You've had a difficult couple of years. Let's see if you can rebuild it. And that, of course, is a wonderful connection to the world of Daniel Ricciardo, who, of course, is the huge talking point. We did an episode on Daniel Ricciardo when the news was out, but this is a chance to reflect a little bit more broadly on the whole situation looking ahead to the Hungarian Grand Prix because it is going to be the the big story so simple question for you Ben opening up what should we expect from Ricardo this weekend ha huh, simple question well red bull will be expecting that he hopefully is closer to yuki sonoda than nick de vries was i think Helmut Mark has been quoted somewhere as saying de vries was consistently by their estimation two or three tenths off sonoda I guess, average pace or what have you, and they didn't see any sign of improvement. So that's the target. There's no point putting Ricardo in that car unless they reasonably expect that he's going to do better than that. Obviously, from Ricardo's point of view, given that he's multiple Grand Prix winner, you know, at one time, at the peak of his powers at Red Bull, he was basically among the best drivers in the world, certainly the best drivers on the grid. He will be expecting more than that. And the world will be expecting more than that if he cannot. I'm not saying he has to do this in one weekend because obviously he's being dropped in. You know, he'll hope that it goes really well. Hungary's a good circuit for him in the past. Obviously, scene of one of his uh, Grand Prix victories, 2014. He will be expecting to get on top of Sonoda, and he has to because if Sonoda, after a run of races, is still ahead or manages to get ahead of Ricardo, I think he's finished. You know, he can't he can't call this a proper comeback if he can't get on top of the incumbent. And obviously from Red Bull's point of view, there's a good opportunity to push Schneider a bit harder as well. You know, he, he might be getting a bit comfortable. If he's got De Vries covered, then it's an opportunity to give him a harder run and see if see what else he's got so for Red Bull it's kind of a no-lose situation for Ricardo he'll be looking at it probably as a as a no-lose situation it's a bonus for him to get back in a race car after this uh, six-month sabbatical but there's a lot riding on it if he can't perform to a better level than he showed the last time he was racing in F1. I, I think it's a it's it's a no-lose situation if we think that this is that this was going to be his only ticket back onto the grid, which is entirely possible given the quality of those two McLaren years. So in, in, if, if that's not the case, if we think there would have been some other opportunities down the line, then actually this potentially could be ruinous. If he's not particularly close to Tsunoda somehow, then that's that's the end. If you failed at McLaren and then on your return to AlphaTauri, you're, you're done. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to give you another look. Uh, I, I think... For Red Bull, though, I would not be surprised if there's a slightly longer leash because, and this is just, this is my theory, trying to sort of read the way Red Bull has been talking about him and the way Red Bull has gone about the situation. I would not be surprised if 
this is at least in part, in big part, a sentimental move for a for maybe for an organization that would maybe also want to inject some pretty good vibes into its secondary team in what has been a miserable, awful, awful season for AlphaTauri. Um, because I don't think maybe other drivers in Ricardo's situation would get the same treatment within Red Bull and the same open arms invitation to come back in his in his current position. I mean, obviously they've seen something good in the in the Silverstone test, but it it a lot of people have pointed to the fact that this sort of deviates from the Red Bull modus operandi and how they normally go about business and the, the kind of driver they normally look for at AlphaTauri. I mean, the, there's there's like a through line running through the Nick DeVries hiring that he wasn't a typical young driver. And we know that Red Bull likes young drivers for its second team, but they've replaced him with a driver who's six years older. So if if that driver who's six years older doesn't have a past history with Red Bull and if there isn't this joint common affinity, and I suspect even an interest within Red Bull, an emotional interest to see Ricardo back to his somewhere to his best and to make sure that his Formula One career doesn't end on the awful note that it could have ended at McLaren. I think that interest comes into play. I think it's so I think it's not just benchmarking Sonoda, which is very important. I think it's not just putting pressure on Sergio Perez, which is very important. I think there's a, a big emotional component to it, which will, I suspect, give Ricardo a slight slightly longer leash. Although he might not need it. So yeah. But what is the Red Bull modus operandi now? Does anyone can anyone really make sense of the driver decisions of recent times? De Vries was in, it seems increasingly on just the whim of Helmut Marco because of that one drive. You know, that one drive that he wasn't expected to get, it was only because basically Alex Albon had appendicitis. And obviously we know Marco loves her, or you've dropped in at the deep end and shone. That now looks like a big miscalculation if they're saying De Vries was just not good enough and wasn't showing any sign of getting good enough to keep that seat. It still seems harsh to drop him mid-season when everyone who knows him says he was a, he's a slow burn kind of driver. You know, the second half of the season should have been better. Really, I, it's been hard to make sense of how Red Bull goes about young drivers or the, the sister team or junior team since Max Verstappen broke the mould. You know, they 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 have history in giving guys who've been beaten or made to look a little bit second-rate other chances. I mean, Daniel Kvyat was treated harshly, some say, but, you know, he got several goes because because they were short of options, I think. Yeah. I think if, they, if they'd had the riches they had previously, that cycle of him going back to Toro Rosso, Toro Rosso multiple times wouldn't, have happened but really since Verstappen and the rise of other teams junior schemes Red Bull hasn't had that embarrassment of riches situation that they had when the likes of Vettel were coming up when Ricardo was coming up and breaking through so really they they seem increasingly to make sort of scrabbling decisions or pragmatic decisions if you want to be generous where they're trying to cover gaps and De Vries was a punt they've obviously decided he isn't working out in the way they hoped they obviously think from what they've seen on on the sim at Milton Keynes and also from the tyre test, oh, it's hard to read into a tyre test, really. I think that's reaching. That Ricardo is going to be at least as good as De Vries was, in which case it would be a... Because De Vries was underperforming by their calculations, it's, it's no loss. But as you say, Val, there's a massive marketing PR gain from having one of F1's biggest personalities, a multiple Grand Prix winner, a huge Netflix star, big in America, where obviously Red Bull are doing a lot of business now, on the grid. It's a talking point. Um, good uh, good PR for the team. And if Ricardo comes back re-energised, rejuvenated, then it looks like a incredibly prescient decision to flip De Vries and get him in the car. I've been trying to think of examples in Formula 1 of drivers who had a really strong track record, winning track record, who got absolutely thoroughly pummeled by a teammate and yet were able to come back to something better than they looked when they were pummeled at another team. And the best, the best, most recent example I could come up with was probably Felipe Massa when he was 
you know, smashed to bits by Alonso, mm. left Ferrari at the end of 2013, having been, you know, their guy so close to winning the championship as well. And he was rejuvenated at Williams, but he was rejuvenated relative to where he was. He wasn't like the second coming of Felipe Massa. You know, it's it's hard to see how your career after going through what Ricardo went through at McLaren gets back to what it was. And ultimately, even if he does impress Alpha Tauri, beats Sonoda, does another season at that team holding pattern while they run Sergio Perez's contract down, then he takes the Red Bull seat in 2025 alongside Verstappen just before the, the rules change again. It's still going back to where he was in 2018. He left Red Bull because he didn't want to be Max Verstappen's number two. Max Verstappen's only got stronger in that team since Ricardo left. I don't foresee a circumstance whereby Ricardo suddenly goes back into Red Bull, gets closer to Max than he was or beats him. I really don't see that. So ultimately the 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 final destination, the best final destination for Ricardo is that he's Max's number two. Yeah. The the absolute best outcome is he is and I think the absolute best is he is the Ricardo that left. Which and the Ricardo that left was, you know, as as Mark Hughes wrote in his piece and as you know, as was observable at the time, the trend line was already going well the other way. It was very clear what was happening in that team. So even if he gets back to that point where he was already slightly second fiddle to Max. Ugh. But it's, you know, it's still more silverware. It's still a chance to to be Formula One driver at the top for longer. It's, you know, it wouldn't have been the priority of that Daniel Ricciardo, but after these two McLaren years, it's what is potentially available. The absolute best case for this Daniel Ricciardo because Mercedes, Ferrari, they're not picking up the phone. Weird... Weird tangent about the Silverstone test. Uh, this is a quiz for you two. Um, in 2019, there was the Barcelona in-season test, and this Mercedes test driver set a lap time sec- uh, good enough for second on the grid. Who was it? Nikita Mazepin. It was Nikita Mazepin. <laughs> that is correct. I, I, can also, so- I can also remember as another example in the post-Abu uh, Dhabi young driver test in, I think, 2010, uh, or uh, yeah, I mean, twenty ten, Jerome D'Ambrosio set a lap time that was like two point one seconds or something quicker than Robert Kubica because the track rubbers in. Now that's not. Uh, I'm not trying to put Jerome D'Ambrosio in the same class as Nikita Mazepin, but I, I think the whole thing about that. Oh, didn't he do well in the tire test? We know a number of things. They'd already decided Nick De Vries was doomed long before the tire test. It looked like it was going to be in the August break, but obviously it was a question of then who do we replace him with. And also this idea that like Ricardo impressed them so much in like the first dozen laps of the tire test that it suddenly all happened, I think is is pretty naive. I, I think they're using the tire test pace as a, a bit of a, a justification for it. I mean, obviously they wanted to make sure he jumped in the car and wasn't completely incompetent. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd agree. Let's not overstate the importance of that uh, particular test. I think the, the lap time that came out, I mean, Red Bull says it, it was good enough for second on the grid. I imagine that's fuel entire corrected because the lap time that, was doing the rounds, I think it was like seventh or eighth on the grid. But it, yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all because we don't know anything about the tires and the fuel and what run plan Pirelli had him on and what run plan maybe Red Bull sort of nudged Pirelli to have him on, just sort of, you know, give him a glory run for us to see what his one lap pace is like. Well, they're complete, and they're completely different tires. They're the no-brain yeah. kit prototypes yeah. for next year. So they're different construction, different compounds. So, you know, it might be the tires are way slower and he put in the most sensational lap there's ever been. It might yeah. also be the tires. Are qu- so it, it's a fairly meaningless comparison. I think the only thing you can take from the test is that he still knows how to drive a Formula One car perfectly competently. I don't think that would come as a surprise to anyone because despite his McLaren struggles and not being the driver he was, he, you know, he was never catastrophically bad. He was still competent and okay. He was no worse than Perez has looked alongside Max. You know, that, that run that Perez arrested by winning Singapore Grand Prix last season. His qualifying run between Baku and there was atrocious. It was his comparison average pace in qualifying was down there with Ricardo versus Norris. So Ricardo still had some decent flashes, I think. Once McLaren upgraded the car, he got his second, didn't he, for Japan that year. He had a quite decent Q1. He had a decent race in Singapore. So there were there were sort of hints that he was 
getting to grips with certain things, but he couldn't string it together. But of course, the big caveat is by that point, McLaren has made it quite abundantly clear that it's lost faith, that they're paying him off. They don't want him there. It's very hard for someone, as I've said before on this podcast, very hard for anyone to give their best when they're in a situation where they, they're known that they're not wanted. For sure, for sure. So I do expect, you know, Ricardo having had his break, having decided the fire still burns, now he's back in his Red Bull family. Now he's got this, une- let's, let's be honest, unexpected opportunity to get back in a race seat middle of 2023 a seat that he wasn't considered for when this opening first arose he I imagine he will be a better version of himself than he was at the end of 22 at McLaren if he's not then there's absolutely no nowhere for this to go but just the everything we know about how Ricardo drives you know he's an emotional guy he likes to feel the love from the team he takes a lot of energy from those around him pulling in his direction so if he's welcomed back to Alpha Tauri, what was Toro Rosso, with open arms from the people he knows there. You know, if they're not just down on their luck because they're having such a tough season, he could he could really give them a boost. They could really give him a boost, and we could see, you know, him kind of piece himself back together. But again, even a slightly better version of the Ricardo that we saw at McLaren is it enough for Red Bull? I imagine from Red Bull's point of view, they just want to see Perez get himself together and this is a good way of applying some long distance pressure isn't it if if Ricardo starts to look decent and Perez can't up his game then again you can look at it maybe earlier but certainly by the end of 24 when Perez's contract runs out you can say right well this guy's looking a bit better than you're looking so it's a it's a minor upgrade but but you know really if if Red Bull had carte blanche to pick whoever they wanted Ricardo's not going to be top of their list for that seat, I don't think. I, I imagine it'll be, I mean, my guess it will be Landon Norris. That would be my guess. Not ask them directly, but that would be. That Alex feels Albon. Alex, Alex Albon, yeah. Albon. But I, honestly, I think Lando Norris over Alex Albon because. It's a know. PR disaster to go back to Albon, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You know, the only reason Perez is there is because you've been Going Albon back, off. clearly not a problem for the, for the Red Bull program right now. Um, I mean, you said that. Ricardo relative to Norris was comparable to Perez relative to Verstappen. I don't. I. I don't. Think I did so. the numbers. They. Yeah. They were. They were both near the bottom of teammate comparisons. I think Latifi was the worst. Yeah. In that run of races, up to including Monza, and I can't remember now exactly, but Ricardo and Perez were similarly far right. off. Oh well, yeah, teammates. fair enough. I it just. I think Perez maybe makes it up for it a little bit by being. Like, the, here's a driver who you don't really expect to do all that well on Saturday anyway, whereas Ricardo, I think, has been something of a qualifying, if not specialist, then you wouldn't expect him to drop to the level that maybe Perez can sometimes drop to over one lap. And also, Verstappen and Norris, I mean, probably most of us do rate Verstappen a bit higher, as good as Lando Norris has been. So... It's, I think I think if they think that Ricardo has been comparable to Perez, then they again they should move mountains to get Lando Norris in that second car, and then they'll have the best lineup in Formula One for however long it's sustainable, which is probably like two races before everything goes complete before they erect a wall between the two sides of the garage, like in MotoGP. I made a MotoGP reference. Oh no! Ah, oh, but they're mates, aren't they? I think they'd be okay if they were teammates. But that's something very much for the longer term future. If we're looking at the next couple of weekends, Hungary and Spa, this is kind of a free hit for Ricardo, isn't it? For him to settle in. He's going to be taking it seriously. He says he wants to enjoy it, but he's got to get to grips with the car. He's trying not to take any preconceptions into it. He'll be very well aware of what the limitations of the car are meant to be with that late entry instability that transitions to understeer in slower corners. The Hungaroring shouldn't be a good track for the Alpha Tauri unless they manage to unlock more from their recent uh, recent upgrades. Obviously, there's a limit to how much they can modify their run plan to to, inco- to, to uh, incorporate him better into the team more quickly. There's a bit you can do, but the, the FP1, FP2, FP3 run plans are pretty well established but they will in in the first session i imagine want to give him a good proper feel of the car and probably a few more laps than they might normally if it was just nick de Vries in the car so i guess that's the that's the big question is do we just have to let ricardo feel his way in and just sort of be okay in these couple of weekends is that a good start or do you think ben given the 
the reputational damage of the years at McLaren. He needs to go in and do a little bit more, you know, not just galvanise the team around. Because I think the team will like having him there. He's a popular character. There'll be there'll be people there who were there when he was in the team. And one of the big advantages he had when he was there, when it was him against Jean-Éric Verne, was the way he worked with the team. They really liked his approach and uh, and his attitude. So I think those will be boxes ticked. But does he need to kind of really seize the initiative and and just do something at least mildly starting, even if that's as modest as sticking a car that might just be able to get into Q2 into 15th place on the grid or something which I have likened to being like getting a pole in a Red Bull he has to do something I think because of who he is and the track record he possesses it's not good enough to come in with that kind of rookie-esque approach where oh I need more time I need more laps you know I need a bespoke run plan I can't have the new parts to test because I need to get used to the car and the systems and what have you there will be some internal leeway for all of that there has to be you know he can't you can't expect anyone to just drop in and automatically have everything nailed down. But equally, he's Daniel Ricciardo. Regardless of what's happened at McLaren, he's got enough experience at the highest level that you should be able to shortcut quite a large degree of the learning process. He knows the tracks. He's been very successful on both of the circuits that are upcoming. So there's no no hiding place really for him in that regard. But it's important for him to take pressure off of himself And I think he's right to go in with a kind of fairly low-key, I want to enjoy this approach to start with, because after all, this is a bonus. This is unexpected. It's not like he's had a whole winter to prepare for this opportunity. It's it's come unexpectedly, even if it was maybe in the back of his mind when he was doing the sim work at Red Bull. So I think he does have to do something. He has to show tangible evidence of what Red Bull have been telling us they've been seeing behind the scenes on the simulator in terms of him coming to them as a kind of damaged, confused, weird driver who's been able to start piecing things back together and looking like the guy he used to be. But the caveat there is the driver that Red Bull remembers will be from 2018. It's five years ago. A lot has changed in that time. Other drivers have progressed. The whole formula has changed beyond recognition. So even from Red Bull's point of view, it's not enough for Ricardo to be what he was in 2018. He needs to become a better version of himself. So not I would treat these next two races as a make no massive blunders, shortcut the learning process as much as possible, get the team around you, get as much out of the car as you possibly can, but particularly work on the elements that are holding you back in terms of how do I access that performance. It's a good test because the limitations you describe, Ed, are sort of things that he really struggled with at Claren. It seems that all the teams that are really struggling under this formula have a similar kind of problem in terms of having that stability on entry and then the car becoming lazy mid-core. I think Pierre Gasly was talking about the Alpine, which has been a much more performant car, having a similar behaviour, actually. It all comes down to the fact that it's just difficult to get similar performance throughout a wide range of ride heights. That's the that's the key problem. You have your limitation somewhere, whether it's high speed, low speed. And yeah, the majority of teams are struggling with that to a greater or lesser extent. Alpha Tari particularly so. Yeah, the ground effect aerodynamic seems to have completely changed the picture. You know, Ricardo's worst season was the first season of these rules. And it seems most teams, apart from Red Bull, are trapped in either having low ride heights, good downforce, but really, really stiff platform control that therefore makes, you know, the ride quality really poor and creates issues in terms of feel, generating front grip, bouncing, although that's obviously reduced a lot, or trying to run softer and more compliant so you have better feel and better mechanical grip, but at the cost of downforce because you have to run the car higher in order to cope with the fact that it's going to travel more from its fastest point to its slowest point in terms of ride height. So the challenge for Ricardo is the same. It's just a different team, I think. So if he can show that he's understood the problems that he experienced personally at McLaren and show also that he's come up with solutions to those problems personally in the way he drives and the way he performs in the Alpha Tauri, then there's hope for the second half of the season that he can he can show the world that he's a better driver than than when he left Formula One. I think ultimately, for me, the outcome I'd like to see in Hungary and in Belgium for, for Ricardo's credentials for this comeback 
And it, it shows how brutal Formula One is. I think if he's a tenth or a tenth and a half off across the two sessions off Tsunoda, if he if he beats Tsunoda or is level with Tsunoda, then obviously it's an instant success. Obviously, that's yeah. all good. If he's a tenth or a tenth and a half off, you think I, th- I think you go okay. It's all right. It's pretty good. It's got to be as close as possible. It can't. It yeah. can't be in that two to three. Yeah. If it's three tenths off, then it's uh, it's it's bad. And that's you know yeah. that's it's not that big a difference between those two parameters. But in modern Formula One, it's massive. So like I think genuinely a tenth or two tenth can set the narrative going forward. Weirdly enough, well not weirdly enough. That's you know that's the world we operate in. Ultimately, I, the comeback. I kind of feel like it goes one of two ways. He either has a kind of Nico Hulkenberg-esque renaissance where everything clicks. And regardless of how poor the car is in relative terms, he's getting the most out of it most weekends, looking like, yeah, it was a great decision to sign him up. Or it goes kind of down the Kimi Raikkonen route where, you know, you go back to the team where it all began and it's a lovely story, but actually you're just on your way out. And most of the the recent drivers who've Albon's an exception because he's a young guy actually he him being smashed by the snap and then let go has been the best thing that's happened to him he's becoming a better version of a version of himself at at Williams but drivers like Raikkonen going back to to Sauber Valtteri Bottas leaving Mercedes I mean he had a good season last season but that hasn't sustained you know he doesn't look like a guy who you know everyone's going to suddenly want to employ again heading towards the next rule set. Sebastian Vettel, you know, he was defeated by Charles Leclerc. Obviously, he was smashed in 2020, by, but he already knew, similar to Ricardo last year, that he was he was no longer required at Ferrari. Went to Aston Martin, looked okay, but, you know, one more season and then, or two more seasons, and then he was done. So Ricardo's going to have to kind of break the mould, I think, if this is going to turn into anything more than just a kind of bonus opportunity it's a simple equation for ricardo he failed at mclaren because he couldn't deliver at the same level norris did in the cockpit but he's made opportunities in the past by delivering at a high level so although he might see the first couple of weekends of free hit he's going to be of the mindset of if i can go in and absolutely ace it then there's a pathway into a red bull seat so i think that will be ricardo's mindset Val, let's have a look at the bigger picture now. How do you think Ricardo fits in with the Red Bull driver strategy? Would you be disappointed if you were Liam Lawson, giving he's seemingly the next cab off the rank for their junior scheme, but he hasn't been selected even though he was in the discussions for who would replace De Vries because we have to remember De Vries's fate was sealed pretty much a, a, a month or two ago. Well, I, I think Ben pointed out correctly that I think maybe the the picture we have in our in our heads of the Red Bull Junior driver scheme isn't that accurate anymore, and that it's not you know it's not a total junior priority. It's just fill the gaps that you can fill with whatever feels like the best idea at the time and the the most interesting punt at the time, regardless of maybe the the origins of said punt. Because I I do think it would have been probably unthinkable to see. Nick DeVries brought in age 28 instead of the crop of Red Bull juniors, even if none of them have fully convinced. Like a few years ago, I don't think I don't think that was going to happen. Um, am I disappointed if I'm Lawson? I think, yes, yes, I think I am. But I think it reflects the, I think Red Bull's attitude towards Lawson might be the same as it was towards Pierre Gasly. And it's, it's really easy, Pierre Gasly pre-Formula 1, I should say. And that's a really easy parallel to draw because like... like but they Lawson, dropped him in mid-season. This is the thing. I remember being in Malaysia. they ran out of options not to. Whereas here they had the option not to. They had something that was slightly more interesting. I think if Ricardo existed in that situation at that time, obviously he didn't. He was in the main Red Bull team. But if he existed in this situation, like an old favorite, or if Sebastian Vettel needed a home at that point, I think they would have all got the nod over Pierre because Pierre didn't even though he won GP2 he didn't quite convince enough and they it was very easy for Red Bull seemingly to decide and I think this was also partly the emotional thing to decide to keep Daniel Kvyat who they had long invested in and still believed in his massive ceiling I think to the very end they believed that Daniel Kvyat's ceiling was higher than Pierre Gasly's ceiling was probably higher than Carlos Sainz's ceiling was higher than most drivers ceiling that they've ever employed but it just 
at a certain point, they just ran out of, of time to try to exploit that ceiling. That's that's the vibe I got from from Red Bull at the time. And that's also the vibe I got from honestly watching Kvyat's career in various various points of it. But that's yeah, it's a massive, massively sidetrack, like I'm Ed on Bring Back V10s or whatever. Um <laughs> I feel like they owe, they felt they owed Kvyat because he was actually performing relatively well against Ricardo, but they had to make room for Verstappen because he was just this whirlwind. Yes, yes. I always felt like Marco had a soft spot for Kvyat and therefore wanted to give him extra chances, even in a way that normally they wouldn't do. So Kvyat obviously had, like any driver would, a complete men- mental struggle to process the fact that he was dropped back into the junior team when he'd been, been performing quite well. And normally he would have been gone either immediately or at the end of that season based on the performance he showed alongside science, but they persevered. Whereas Gasly, is, he's very similar to Lawson in the sense of it's like, we'll do another year in Japan and then we'll see how we go. And they decided, yeah, we're going to go for you. And it kind of worked out for him. Lawson, they maybe they're, we- maybe they're wary because of the fact that Gasly Punt didn't ultimately work out. You know, he did did well at Toro Rosso and then they promoted him to Red Bull and it was a complete disaster. And it really, it always, always comes back to Max Verstappen. It's Ricardo was not in his own head because he didn't like, obviously, the way the team was moving away from him. Who would? You know, that's a, that's a, a specific thing in time that anyone would struggle with. But he was the perfect driver to have alongside Max, someone experienced, race winner, close enough on pace, even if he's more often not second best. They've been scrabbling around ever since. You know, they they would have liked to retain science, but that, that's the last time they had the embarrassment of riches, science kind of pushing to get out of Torosso and there being nowhere for him. And ironically, Ricardo leaving opened up that spot by, by which point science had taken his destiny into his own hands. Ricardo was a great fit. Putting a young driver alongside just hasn't worked twice in a row. So that's why obviously they went for Perez because they thought, well, here's a guy again who's shown he can win races. He's experienced. He won't cause the kind of internal problems that we have. He'll be he'll be lower maintenance than having a young guy in there. And that now seems to have almost inverted Red Bull's approach to drivers. So before where they were very much like, who's the next young hot thing? Let's just keep promoting from within, getting them in cheap, you know, building their whole careers for them. Vettel worked out great. Stappen is a different case, really, uh, but has worked out great. We can't find young drivers to put alongside him because they they just get blown apart and they can't handle it. So now they have to start looking for experienced guys. And weirdly, that now plays into Ricardo's hands. It played massively into Perez's hands, and now he's struggling. There's another opportunity for someone with a track record and experience to go in there, and they will know that they won't need to do quite so much work with Ricardo as long as he's you know a decent version of himself than if they try and take a punt on a Lawson uh, I should correct I should correct myself by saying that obviously Lawson and Gasly's junior records not so comparable Gasly's was just obviously better so that's not even particularly like Gasly won GP2 Lawson he was okay in Formula 2 in flashes pretty good but he was never particularly close to winning it so that you know that'll also play a part but it's also a different standard of Red Bull Juniors right now. That program is no longer the absolute mammoth world beater it used to be. But they had no competition for a time. It was where everyone wanted to be. Yeah. They were the only team really putting money into young drivers consistently and they were creating this bottleneck at the top. Yeah. And that just doesn't exist anymore. But that's the reason why, although elements of the way Red Bull has operated have changed, as, as I said, AlphaTauri isn't so laser-focused on young drivers. I think, actually, the Red Bull scheme itself has stayed largely the same, but the world around it has changed. You've now right. got a load of junior schemes. You know, there were some other ones at times back when Red Bull was at its zenith when it would have sort of 20 drivers on its books. But it wasn't such a crowded marketplace. And you've now got organizations taking an almost top-level football scouting-style approach to their monitoring of karting and junior single-seaters, their metrics, their analysis. And you can't just sort of watch somebody in a race, have them catch your eye and think, oh, that person looks pretty good. You have to look at it more broadly. And I think that's why we've seen Red Bull have so many drivers who are kind of decent and good, but not necessarily with that extra edge because the, the that that's just the the environment they're they're battling in because 
there's so much competition so they're not going to kind of hit upon the absolute best ones automatically as good quality as they have within their their ranks that's the way i see it anyway i i still see lawson's chances of making it onto the formula one grid as decent because well I'm not sure I necessarily buy Christian Horner's recent explanation that they didn't go for Lawson because it wouldn't have been the fairest thing to do to plug him in mid-season as a rookie into this car because I think when Red Bull... You don't buy it. I mean, it, he can't claim it's unfair to do that to Lawson and it's fair to bin De Vries after yeah. half a season. Yeah, but... Fairness is not really the order of the day, is it? Yeah, but I also think it's it's something that would not bother them if it's a driver that they potentially see as a long-term Red Bull senior team option, right? Because it's all, it's all about sink or swim when it comes to Red Bull. It tells them so much whether a driver can adapt instantly like that in the hardest of circumstances. And if if they can't, even if they're a really good driver, then I think Red Bull quickly sours. So I think, but on the other, on the other side of things, let's not forget Liam Lawson is doing really well in Japanese Super Formula, which is not, not an easy championship for an import driver to do so well in. Lawson is now one point off the championship lead. He won the next race after Ricardo's announcement. He's now has three wins in his rookie season, which is more than Stoffel van Dorn. It's more than Pierre Gasly. It's more than Alex Palau. All of these drivers who did really well in Super Formula. Lawson has now surpassed in terms of win count. I mean, performance comparing, that's a, that's an entirely different kettle of fish, you know. But still, you know, three wins in Super Formula in your rookie season, that's, that's really good. Decent. Yeah. So I think that might just at a certain point Red Bull even if it's probably not entirely convinced that he's a future senior team option I still think he may be earning himself enough leeway to still remain very much front of the queue for Alpha Tauri whatever happens the question there is whether an Alpha Tauri vacancy arises in in 2024 which I think at this point is far from a given because it would require either a disillusionment from Ricardo or with Ricardo or Ricardo beating Tsunoda and Red Bull realizing that actually the Tsunoda experiment is 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 basically over. Uh we can you know Liam Lawson is not the only Red Bull Junior, so we should talk about Red Bull's you know junior program as a whole. They don't just have so they have Lawson in Super Formula. They also have six drivers in Formula 2, if I'm not mistaken. I, I counted every time in preparation. I just forget the number I wrote down. And those six drivers... Talk about spreading your bets. Yeah. Six drivers yeah, in six drivers like, So like six Red Bull livery cars in Formula 2. And none of the drivers in Formula 2 have made... Like, they're almost all tripping over themselves to where there's no real reason to focus on any single one of them except for maybe a sophomore driver, Yumu Uasa, who still, I think, remains the best Formula Two Red Bull Formula Two prospect? But I just I went into I went to the stats and I went to check something uh, about the Red Bull Formula Two contingent. So uh, of those six cars, their best average qualifying, and I mean the best qualifying, the average qualifying of the best Red Bull car, is three point six, which is not so good when there's six cars, right? The best of the six cars is only three point six on average. It's not so good because Alpine Junior Victor Mar- Martins, who's a rookie, is rocking a 3.1 average qualifying. They're beaten by one Alpine driver. Uh, Ayumi Wasa is in championship picture. I think his team, Dams, isn't having the absolute best of seasons. I think he's hanging in there through a mixture of experience and being a, a pretty cunning operator who's you know got enough pace about him. I think... They should really have a hard thing over whether it's Iwasa or Lawson who is the more interesting prospect for them because I think Iwasa also has a good case and was really good last year. But maybe there's also a case of the two of them tripping over each other. The rest of the group are all either either longer-term prospects or in the discard pile is how I would put it. And like, like maybe next year we're seeing one of those drivers explode in Formula 2 in terms of form. And maybe they suddenly become the obvious next AlphaTauri driver. But right now, it's rookie Zane Maloney, who's a new Red Bull Junior hire, is doing pretty well. I think he's maybe the main contender, but still, he needs a big step. Enzo Fittipaldi in his sophomore season, also a new Red Bull recruit, also doing reasonably well, also needs a big step. All of them sort of 
aren't really in the top three or four drivers you would look at in Formula 2 to bring into Formula 1, which is a not a great position for the Red Bull Junior program to be in because you'd at the very least expect it to definitely have one of the absolute gems in in the system right now. And I, Iwasa might be that, but I, I don't know. It's, you know, they probably have to still see more from him too, which, you know, it's... It doesn't reflect so well on the program, even though it is commendable how many how many drivers they back and how many punts they take. I think that is that is good, but it's a crowded market now, isn't it? Everyone, I go back to Verstappen again. You know, they moved heaven and earth to get him and get him into Formula One. They they courted him for a long time, yeah. But Yoss was clever, wanted to do things his own way so that he would have the power in the market that they've been able to wield and effectively make Red Bull subservient to their interests rather than the other way around, which it was the case for Vettel and was the case for Ricardo on their way up. And ever since Verstappen came in and literally broke the system, not only Red Bulls, but Formula Ones, and they had to put license points in place to stop someone who couldn't drive on the road getting into Formula One. Yeah, because what a disaster he proved to be. Yeah, well, exactly. But, <laughs> Total failure. But another another ramification has been that every other Formula One team has seen that and suddenly been resolved to we've got to, we've got to grow our own. We've got to find our own version of that. And I remember the buzz about Charles Leclerc, and obviously Ferrari got their hooks in, and they turned him into a you know very very strong Formula One driver. Mercedes, Gwen Legrue got his hooks into Russell. And they helped him on the way up, and now they're reaping the benefits of that. McLaren developed their relationship with Lando Norris very early on through the Autosport Award, I think. And that's worked out really well for them. Red Bull, since Verstappen, they have had slimmer pickings, basically. And also the the level we were then expecting someone to show at those junior levels in order to impress enough that you might take the pun on them your expectations are massively raised by what you've you've seen from Max. They they can't not be. So suddenly it's 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 not enough yeah. to be doing okay in Formula Two and having a few wins in Super Formula. You need everyone's wanting to see something outstanding. You need to be looking like the next big thing for someone to think it's worth a punt. And therefore, from the AlphaTauri point of view, actually. Your question was about Ricardo maybe being a longer-term option for them, I and mean, it kind of makes sense, you know. They, if they don't think Sonoda is is all that, and I'm, I get the feeling they don't, and obviously there've been Honda considerations there. He's doing fine, you know. He's progressing, certainly doing better since Gasly left. Do you really want two young drivers in there anymore? You know, if you're not really looking to find a young driver to put in alongside Max from the scheme, actually you're changing tack and thinking we need experienced drivers to go alongside Max because no one else can hack it. And actually having a kind of Perez-Ricardo type pipeline, even if they're slightly on the way down in their careers, makes a lot more sense than just throwing some other young kid to the Lions. Yeah, no, that's yeah, that's, that's, that's right. And obviously putting two young drivers in always is going to compromise your constructor standings. Young drivers, even when they're fast, they don't score the points they should score. That's the whole point of a rookie they will not bring you the points that even even if it fine even if it turns out ricardo is like one or two tenths slower than tonodo over a single lap i would not be surprised in even in that scenario if ricardo outscores tonodo going forward just because and tonodo is not you know the youngest rookiest driver anymore but i think i think you get my point returning to the to the other juniors in the queue point it just i guess they now have to do their recruitment within formula one because outside of Formula One, it's not really getting getting done, which is not ideal when you have a junior team. But who are the best junior prospects below Formula One right now? I would say in F2, it's rookies, Oliver Behrman and Victor Martins. That's Ferrari and Alpine, respectively. Alpine. Uh, outside of Formula 2, it's Andrea Kimi Antonelli in Formula Regional. That's a Mercedes protege for a very long time now. He's 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 going to be part of that family for a long, long time. He's going to come to Formula 1 as part of that family, I presume. Red Bull has a good driver in Formula 4 and Arvid Lindblad, who's doing okay. But Formula 4 is not a great predictor. Like, you don't know. So they're not, like, at, at this certain point, they've not had the successes of unearthing total gems right now. 
So they're waiting, aren't they? They're waiting for the next one. I yeah. feel like with Lawson, if they really believed Lawson was the guy, he'd be in the car now. Yes, I think so. He, he yeah. may he may have even been in the car ahead of De Vries. And the fact that he's missed out twice, I think, tells you enough about how Red Bull sees him. They're keeping him on a short leash in case they need him, yeah. but they don't support him in a way that they think he's the next coming. They're waiting for someone like you've just described who's already hooked yeah. up to another Formula One team who's making waves as a rookie in a junior category that looks almost irresistible. Yeah, I think I think Lawson, I, he did climb, I think, their internal ranks, I imagine, over the years, but he's still like... He can convince them to get to Formula One, but there is no current belief. I don't think that he's going to be senior team material, which you can you can always change. I don't think that belief was there with Pierre Gasly. And I mean, OK, it didn't work out, but they did at a certain point at least go, OK, yeah. senior team. Well, he, he was Giovinazzi, wasn't he? You know, yes. that, that season he yes. won, Giovinazzi was close to winning. Yes. And that, you know, he was, I remember talking to Pierre about it, and I think it was in Sochi. Yeah. And he was absolutely furious that he wasn't getting promoted. Yeah. But they essentially said, well, we need you to do something else to really prove that we need you. And he did that. And, you know, the, the, the deal was done. But also he was slightly fortunate in the sense that science was angling to get out of Toro Rosso. And, you know, they did that deal with Renault and that created the opportunity. So this is the thing. Lawson could be hanging around for that kind of opportunity, but in this analogy, this is the opportunity and he's been overlooked for bringing back one of the old guard. And that's that's never good if you're a young driver. It's going to shake your faith in the whole system. We should also just bear in mind the the Perez dimension. So obviously that can have a knock-on effect. Christian Horn has said that Daniel Ricciardo's got his eye on the Perez seat in 2025. Now, of course, he can't say he's got his eye on it in 2024 because Perez is under contract. I do think chances are Perez will stay there. I think Red Bull would definitely rather not have to disentangle themselves from that contract. And the ideal is that Perez delivers at the level that he should be doing. But this is Red Bull, isn't it? So we've got to bear in mind, if Ricardo jumps in the Alpha Tower and aces it and Perez continues to struggle, then of course there's going to be the question mark of, oh, actually, do we try and do this for 2024? And certainly the pressure has built up a little bit on Perez. This run of not reaching uh, Q3 has been very problematic and I think he's not suddenly forgotten how to drive he's not a driver who's suddenly a second off the pace he's not executing and putting stuff together well and he should get it all together but I just said three races ago there's no way he's going to keep failing to get to Q3 so that that's the big question isn't it how it fits in with that that Red Bull seat and despite what Horner says 2024 will be on Ricardo's mind as well because there's always the possibility but I always like for me that's still like the only for me, the only reason still to seriously consider Daniel Ricardo as a Sergio Perez replacement is sentimentality. Honestly, it's to have a driver of what I assume would be a similar performance level. I, I don't want to say at best, but in the higher range of outcomes, he's homegrown. So you'd rather have a homegrown driver. Maybe the vibes are a little better. Maybe you know him a little better. You're more invested in his success. There's no. I've been I've been roasted in the work Slack chat for this take. There's no case to replace Perez right now. I like I know that's that's a crazy thing to say considering he's missed Q3 in the best car in history for a consecutive seven million races. But he's still you know the car is good enough to where he he recovers well enough for it to not matter. Like he's gonna you know even if he misses. Q3, which I think has been slightly circumstantial in terms of the track conditions and weather conditions, which it's been a unique patch of Formula One races in that regard, in terms of weather mostly. I just, as long as he's recovering from those, it's honestly maybe even better that he's not starting alongside Max on the front row and they can potentially squabble like they did in the Austria sprint. It's better to to have him start 10th or whatever and end up third by the end of the race congratulations all good okay maybe red bull doesn't think it'll have this kind of advantage in 2024 or anywhere near this kind of advantage in which case it becomes a factor but still perez is not there is not a pierre gasly or alex Albon situation here he's not getting lapped by verstappen is he which we've, we've seen from from gasly unfortunately so for me you only you only move to replace him if there's the hot new thing that you see the opportunity to grab 
Like for, you, you, you've suddenly found out that Lando Norris has a two-pound exit clause in the McLaren contract that they wrote in Magic Marker and nobody noticed before that. Go for it immediately. Same with, I guess, Alex Albon and Williams go for it. Although I'm not sure. I still think you'd have to think about it and have a look. I'm not sure how much of an instant upgrade Alex Albon would be on Sergio Perez. I think there's, even with all of Perez's four woes and particularly qualifying woes, there are not that many drivers on the grid to where he'd be, this is an automatic upgrade. And I just, Ricciardo, after the two seasons at McLaren he's had, I wouldn't take this punt. It's very interesting. And if he's suddenly beating Tonoda two or three tenths every weekend, then suddenly, yeah. But if I were Red Bull, I would not be taking this punt. But if I'm Red Bull, I don't have the relationship with Ricardo and the knowledge of his past performances and the knowledge of what I've seen on the simulator and the knowledge of how happy he makes the team. And all of those factors, I imagine, do contribute. That's why I call it maybe slightly an emotional decision for me. That's how I perceive it. We'll see. If it, if it works out, it'll be a great Formula One story. And clearly, F1 will lap it up because when Ricardo was announced, F1, the official F1 Twitter account fired off 15 consecutive tweets about Ricardo. Uh, and I'm not counting retweets or like threaded tweets or 15 separate tweets. So maybe I personally underestimate the marketing lure of having Daniel Ricardo in a top Formula One car. Maybe there's also that. But he's he's big news. But I mean, there's a big commercial element to having Perez in the top team, isn't there? Because sure. you know he's yeah. huge in Mexico, big sponsorship behind him. That all helps. I think Red Bull can be quite relaxed in this situation because of that advantage they have. You know, it's been said by many people, Verstappen will be winning the constructors' championship this year on his own, such as the lack of opposition. So Perez underperforming on a Saturday consistently doesn't make huge odds at the moment when he's able to recover decently in the races. Red Bull will have to keep half an eye on how the competition progresses through the second half of this season. You know, it feels like maybe not the same team, but teams in general are starting to put him under more pressure on the Saturday, get closer, although he's enjoying that, you know, two new sets of tyres advantage in Q3 that's keeping him out of trouble. And obviously Red Bull have biased their whole approach to be more focused on the race where he's still, you know, under no pressure. But if they feel like McLaren are getting too close, Norris starts getting pole positions at certain places or Mercedes get their act together with this new concept and start looking like if they just add the trick suspension over the winter, they're going to be right back in the mix. Suddenly the Perez question becomes really important Yes, because they will not be able to afford having a second car, not making Q3, not protecting Max from the hordes that are eager to bring him down. And therefore, they will look at Ricardo's performance and think, well, if we feel like this budget-capped atr Formula 1 is clawing us back and our early advantage is diminished, then we need a really high-performing second driver to protect us in 2024. And Ricardo, as you say, Val, is demolishing to Sonoda to the tune of two or three tenths every race, then it's it's no question you know, that you exit the Perez contract, you take the hit, you put Ricardo in and you protect yourselves. But if you feel like actually you've got this covered still and another winter of development means you'll eke out a similar advantage and Max can kind of get the job done anyway, there's no need to touch Perez for another season. And then all bets are off. You know, you don't necessarily renew Perez's contract, but you look at who else is on the market. They will have to have also in mind what happens with Verstappen, as we discussed with Mark Hughes on the most recent F1 podcast before this recording. You know, there's a Max is floating this idea that he he, he might be done even before his contract's up. You know, he doesn't like the way Formula One's going in 2026 with the new rules and bigger batteries and more weight and the effect it's going to have on the cars. And he's powerful enough, you know, as the likes of Prost and Senna were, that he could just walk. You know, he'd happily exit that contract if he feels like he's done with Formula One, doesn't want to be there. So Red Bull have to think, well, actually, we might only have two more seasons of Mats in a worst-case scenario. And then that, that is absolutely why Helmut Marco and the like have to start having meetings with Lando Norris's agent because... You've got to start casting around. I don't think, with the greatest of respect, a Daniel Ricciardo slightly recovered 
or a Yuki Tsunoda or a Sergio Perez who gets his act together on Saturday is a guy who can fill the void left by Max Verstappen walking away at the end of 2025. For sure. And I, I, I should say, as you correctly pointed out, it, it is a matter of hedging your bets for 2024. So when I say that there's no case to replace Perez, that's not me saying he's been particularly good. And that's not me saying that if other teams get closer, it's not going to be a problem. It's just right now in the current situation, if you're confident that the current situation maintaining, it doesn't really matter. But I think it is it is funny that we've ended up in this situation where um, so Red Bull isn't yet making ruthless moves to secure its driver of the future the way the previous team that employed uh, Daniel Ricciardo did. Uh, McLaren, I was honestly, I was personally quite worried about McLaren's driver situation maybe a couple of years ago when it felt like, you know, Lando Norris had signed a new contract, which I didn't really understand at the time. Still don't entirely understand now, but whatever. Um, but it felt like he was growing disillusioned with the level of the car and the, the progress of the technical department. So you could have felt like he might walk away at the very least at the end of the contract. Daniel Ricciardo was bad, just bad. Uh, they had no real, like, there was a situation where they just were left without their anchor driver. And I think maybe Zach Brown foresaw that or somebody else foresaw that within the operation. And they took a big financial hit extra and made maybe the kind of news that you don't necessarily always want to make as a Formula One team, sort of ruffled the feathers of your rivals, made a bit of a, a, a storm by going after Oscar Piastri clearly very aggressively. And here we are a year later, and it's it's been a blinder. None of us are worried about McLaren's driver lineup anymore. They've, they've played this magnificently. They've taken the financial hit to shore up their lineup for the longer term. They've taken the punt that they needed to ensure that they have whatever happens, even if Norris is somehow lured away by Red Bull right now. They'll be fine. Piastri's already, Piastri's already yeah, showing enough that they know they'll be fine. So yeah. McLaren can be relaxed. No, no, they can also bring they can also bring Alex Pillow from IndyCar. Alex Pillow just drove the best IndyCar race I've borderline ever seen with a front wing dragging across the floor. He can also be a good Formula One driver. I'm entirely convinced of this. They will be fine because of how McLaren has played this and protected basically all of its bases when it once looked like it risked not having a good long-term driver strategy. Red Bull, I think, is not playing it yet. And a 34-year-old Daniel Ricciardo, it doesn't feel to me like a long-term franchise driver driver strategy. But ultimately, it'll be very simple. If Ricciardo does the job, he'll have a chance, especially if Perez continues to struggle. If he doesn't, he won't. It's what it always comes down to. There's always a lot of talk about the peripheral things, but performance is what counts in Formula One. So that's what Ricardo's backing himself to deliver. It may be a difficult opportunity, but he needs to do something. And all that previous credit he's got in the bank means that if he does well in the Alpha Tauri and can be seen to be doing well, that will unlock a lot of that credit back into his straight back into his uh, his bank account. So it could go absolutely either way, which is going to which is what is going to make this weekend so fascinating. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, Ben, let's take a quick look ahead to the Hungarian Grand Prix and other aspects. McLaren's form is a big talking point of the British Grand Prix. How revealing do you think the Hungarian's going to be in terms of showing where it's really at, given it's a track that does play to the car's weaknesses? Yeah, it's going to be massive. Uh, McLaren themselves have been talking about this aspect. Andrea Stella obviously has done a very good job 
since taking over as team principal has that realist engineering mindset he's not getting carried away with what we've seen in Austria and then more so at Silverstone high speed content cool conditions absolutely play to the particular strengths core strengths of McLaren's car you know very good at firing up the tires a bit like the Haas good at high speed um, but not so good where there are more corners and low speed particularly so Hungary is going to be likely the polar opposite usually it's a very hot race much softer tires much twistier much less high speed content so if McLaren can do similar to what they did at Silverstone not necessarily qualify 2-3 but be right in the mix with Ferrari who should be stronger Mercedes who should be stronger that will suggest that this three phase upgrade which obviously there's more to come in Budapest which the team says is focused on uh, race pace so presumably looking after those tires when they're under extreme stress this has the potential to set the direction for the rest of the season if they if they're up there with Mercedes and Ferrari again they'll they'll say well we've cracked it we've got the right baseline now we just need to hope there's enough fruit down the road on this concept that we can just keep developing away obviously there won't be much more development for the rest of this season because you're getting to the point of crossover and needing to plan for 2024 most teams are talking about oh there might be a package that comes after the summer break maybe you phase that package over a number of races but you won't get much more beyond that because everyone has to start thinking about 2024 development and biasing their spend as well but McLaren will be looking for certification if you like that this is the right direction and there's no better contrast really than having Silverstone where they already would have expected to be really strong even if they hadn't upgraded to Hungary where demands are completely different if they're strong there in the mix with the top two three teams behind Red Bull even if they're off the back of the group, I think if they're close, you know, within a tenth or two, the sort of amount of time that can be quantified by driver confidence set up, you know, optimization of the weekend, they'll be very encouraged. But I would not expect them to be on the podium right behind Max. I think of it as a bit of a rangefinder in that if Silverstone was the top end of what McLaren can achieve, this might be towards the bottom end. So is that down around Alpine level or is that still in that group? I think we'll see Aston Martin performing a lot better. But it kind of establishes where in that group is because you've got Aston Martin, Ferrari, Mercedes established as that group of three that have bounced around and exactly whether McLaren is kind of always in them or it just falls off the back on the difficult times because there's still limitations in that car the kind of corners that the Hungarian not to, it's uh, not a strength and also we know it's still got the peculiarities of driving style and the, the inconsistencies and the problems that make it quite a hard car to drive the ones that caused Danny Ricardo all those problems so yeah I don't think it'll be a reality check for McLaren because I think this is what they're expecting to happen when they go there they're very very clear and uh, and understanding what their situation is but it, it's it's a nice way to see the perhaps McLaren on a bad day versus McLaren on a good day which is what Silverstone was. I mean, you say you say around Alpine. I think honestly, could be easily behind that, right? Entirely possible if if the track particularly doesn't suit. I know the the upgrade has primarily, if I understand correctly, added downforce. I mean, downforce in Hungary, that's good. But yeah, it's it's that kind of you know that kind of track to track swing where you can easily like lose a car in Q one or something. So even even if that's the case, I think it's important for them to adjust expectations accordingly. Whatever happens. Because at this point, the the higher end of the range I, is more important than the lower end of the range. Yeah, it's it's just all about improving that that, that average performance over over time. And yeah, your peaks are a, are a good thing because that shows what can happen when the when the car's going well. You'll hope to kind of join those dots of the peaks of performance by getting that uh, lower speed performance. Although, as I've mentioned earlier, with these ground effect regulations, it can be quite easy to end up in a scenario where you work well at one speed range but not so well at others so yeah there's there's a lot still for McLaren to do but they know that and also the teams that they're trying to compete with are also battling against fundamental weaknesses versus strengths that show up in different places you mentioned Aston Martin Alonso in particular will will expect to go really well in Hungary because we know that's a car that's very strong at low speed with a penalty of a lot of drag shouldn't hurt them so much in Hungary. They're almost the the mirror image of McLaren in terms of where the strengths and weaknesses lie. So you'd expect Aston to be pushing to lead that group behind Max, maybe Perez if he's got his act together 
this weekend because the circuit suits the inherent characteristics of the Aston Ferrari, I think, will be stronger, certainly in qualifying, because although they've attacked drag, their lower speed performance seems to be better than their high speed performance generally, although it's not quite as as acute as in the case of Aston Martin. They'll be worried about the tyre degradation situation in the race, though, because of soft tyres and hotter conditions. That doesn't really suit the Ferrari, but they have been trying to work on that area, so it's a good test for them. Mercedes, they're a bit more of an all-rounder. I think they'd be they'd be certainly okay on the tyre front. They'll be strong in the race, but qualifying, their car lacks rear grip, struggles at low speed. So I think they'll have a challenge on their hands in qualifying. Silverstone was really interesting for them. They expected to go well there. Of course, on Friday, in the hot conditions, they had really strong race pace and no one-lap pace, and then the conditions switched around for Saturday, and they had pretty strong one lap pace, but they were slower than McLaren. So Mercedes, I kind of think they execute well. They'll be in the mix like they always are, but they won't necessarily be at the front of the queue behind Red Bull. And then we'll see where McLaren and Alpine fit into that picture. But I I would expect Ferrari and Aston, if I had to choose, to be the strongest challengers to Red Bull on Saturday and Sunday, but maybe Ferrari stronger on the Saturday and less so on the Sunday. At, At the same time, and this is not in terms of temperature, but specifically layout, is there the expectation that the effect is going to be lesser than maybe what conventional wisdom sometimes suggests? Because I remember the talk about, you know, the long running description of Hungaroring as Monaco without the walls. I think in recent years, drivers don't really approve of that so much because I think some of them have said it's more even of a medium speed corner track now than low speed. Would that would that be accurate? Yeah, it's more you call it, call it kind of media low to medium speed mm. but that also exposes some of the weaknesses of the mclaren particularly there's some uh, there's a few longer corners there as well and so i think yeah it's not monaco without the walls as it perhaps was once that's certainly uh the case but uh yeah I've, I've, we've, we've sort of been talking in terms of low versus high speed as the only two classifications but yeah it, it is it is sort of yeah low medium speed components in the, in that circuit so yeah I, I don't think it's going to be disastrous for McLaren although funnily enough when you get to really low speed and you can rely more on the mechanical platform that, that sort of changes it again so again that, that that's going to make it interesting to see how uh, how McLaren fares here because it's it's quite a revealing circuit and actually we'll get Hungary and then Spa again other end of the scale yet again so they should go well at spa but it'll give us a nice broad perspective on where mclaren's at at the moment and that whole group behind because they've all been making changes but the simple fact is that red bull is always well ahead and there's no consistent challenger and i think we can probably expect red bull to tick off another win at the hungaroring could be an interesting weekend for perez he didn't have a great one there last year either it's not actually a particularly happy hunting ground for him the hungaroring so that's not perhaps the track he'll be happiest to go to needing to end this bad run, but I think there's no doubt he can deliver if he just executes correctly, gets the tyres working, qualifying, just delivers in Q1, Q2 and Q3, and there could be a nice second place on offer. And if he can deliver at that level, all the question marks will subside. Well, thanks very much to Val and Ben for your insight. Head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen plenty to read there and loads of coverage of the Ricardo situation. And of course, the Hungarian Grand Prix weekend coming up. Check out our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories, the Race F1 Tech Show, our IndyCar podcast as well, MotoGP, that Val is regularly on. And also have a look at our YouTube channel. Well, we're turning our attention now firmly to goings-on at the Hungaroring, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the Hungarian Grand Prix. The Athletic.